Amen and good morning. It's good to be with you this morning uh, and to gather and continue our study in Matthew's gospel. Uh, and even as the text was read, uh, I hope you see that uh, it's not a very complicated text, though it is a very intense text. Uh, Christ in this text uh, clearly has a subject he means for us to deal with. And the doctrine of this text, and uh, if you would pluck out the doctrine of this text, that is the cross of Christ, then you unravel all that is authentic Christianity. If you remove the cross from Christianity, you remove Christianity. And in this text, this is what we're going to see is that it's relatively simple, the words themselves, though the call is very lofty and very high. And even as we've been encouraged and having conversations, lots of visitors and so grateful that you're here, and maybe you are one of those visitors who I just heard last week some uh, one person who was here and never been to a Christian church, never sat in a church uh, or heard the scriptures read. I've, I've had great conversations with a number of visitors from different places on the planet and different places spiritually and theologically and backgrounds. And so we welcome you uh, as you're here, whoever you are. But wanted to take this moment and just start with a pastoral word as there's so much encouragement and joy. Even for our own church, uh, there's transition with lots of growth. So there's excitement about lots of numeric growth, but there's also, man, there's more people in the room I don't recognize than I do recognize. And so some of you visitors maybe would say, man, this church doesn't feel very friendly. Uh, all these members aren't talking to me. It might be because there's as many visitors like you thinking that about you as you are about them. <laughs> so there's a lot of visitors and there, there's a lot of folks in our church. And so in this moment, I kind of want to say, even as we come to this text pastorally, uh, welcome to the visitors, but also to our members this text really shapes and, and demonstrates everything this church and indeed any faithful church must be built upon. So the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, my favorite passage in Scripture as far as ministry goes and thinking about a philosophy of ministry, uh, tells the, the, the church in Corinth, And I, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come to you proclaiming the gospel or the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I resolved to know nothing among you but Christ and him crucified. And then he says, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of man, but the power of God. So Paul says in his ministry, I made a resolution. And that resolution was when I get with you, you know, nothing, I know nothing among you like I know cross. Somebody look at your neighbor and say, we're going to talk about the cross. <laughs> like King's cross is going to talk about the cross. Now, ironically, this week, I wonder if you noticed the cross is actually smaller. <laughs> so it was too big when they first made it. They made some mistakes, and BT uh, asked them, hey, this is not what you told us. Let's shrink the cross. I was like, hold on, BT. I don't, I don't like how it sounds if we say, let's shrink the cross. So I'm blaming that one on BT, though I do think it looks better. Uh, amen to that. But for the Christian faith to be authentically Christian— for the Christian person to be authentically a Christian person, for a Christian church to be authentically a Christian church, the cross is at the center of all that we do. And if you take the cross out, you undo everything we believe. Every other doctrine ceases to matter if you remove the cross of Christ. And so very simply this morning, two simple points. Number one, we must embrace the king's cross. Not this church, literally the king, King Jesus, his cross. And then number two, we must embrace our cross. Very simple. We must embrace the king's cross. We must embrace our cross. Let's pray and ask for God's help, and we'll jump in. Father, again, we plead. Would you now reveal yourself to us through the preaching of your word? Holy Spirit, open up our hearts and our minds and our eyes. I pray even as I know there are Christians who are leaning in, ready to be encouraged by your word. 
There are Christians who've been running away from you and honestly are resisting you even at this moment. And there are non-Christians, non-Christians who are coming hungering, looking for answers, and they're non-Christians surely here, they're skeptical, like, ah, I'm here, but I don't really want to be. Holy Spirit, only you can move in power with people from all different backgrounds, all different moments coming into this moment in the way that we need and pray and plead for you to move. Only you can do that. So please do it, we pray. We ask you, move in power. Speak to the hearts of your people. We pray for Jesus' sake and in his good name. Amen. First, we must embrace the king's cross. And the reason we must embrace the king's cross is because that's why he came. So look again at verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And you need to know in the book of Matthew, even this phrase from that time signifies there's a, a big turning point. So again, we've been leading up to our text for last week. Jesus has been demonstrating his power through his miracles, his power through his teaching. He's been revealing, I'm unique, I'm Messiah, I'm Christ, I'm King. And then with his disciples last week, he said, okay, who are people out there in the streets saying that I am? Okay, but who do you say that I am? And Peter confessed, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus responded to Peter and said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And he said, and you are Peter whose name sounds like rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell, the gates of death will not stop it. Whatever you bind on earth has been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth has been loosed in heaven. And from that time, now he must go to Jerusalem. Peter's confessed, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus has responded, that's the right confession. God has revealed to you who I am. And now from that time, life and ministry that's been primarily happening around Galilee, Galilee is headed south towards Jerusalem. He must go to Jerusalem, and he must die. He must suffer at the hands of the elders and the scribes and the chief priests. That's the Sanhedrin, the, the official ruling court. He must go there, and he must die. And on the third day, he must get up from death. And so Matthew, in this gospel, this account, he's taking us along. And at this point, he's saying, hey, we're headed to the cross. That's where we're going. We're after the cross of Christ towards Jerusalem. He's headed to die. And the rest of this book is about that. Jesus is headed to the cross. Everything else you're going to read is on the way to the cross. And this is what he must do. He's bound. He's tied to it. Literally, what he must do is the same word where he talked about binding and loosing, the binding last week. Exact same word. He's bound to this. He's tied to this. He's gripped to this. He must go to Jerusalem, and he must die. Why? Because that's what he came to do. Matthew opened up this gospel account in chapter 1, verse 21. When, he has the, uh, when the, the, uh, the angel lets uh, Mary and Joseph know, let Joseph know that, hey, Mary's pregnant, and she ha- she's pregnant with Messiah. And there's this interaction in Matthew 121. The angel says, she'll bear a son. You will call his name Jesus, which just means Yahweh saves, for he will save his people from their sins. This is the whole reason he came, to save his people from their sins. And the way he's going to save his people from their sins is by dying on the cross in their place. And then out on the third day, raising from the grave. Christ came to die and resurrect. He is bound to this. He's tied to a substitutionary death, burial, and resurrection in order to save all who would trust in him from their sins. And this is the triune God's eternal plan of redemption. So I want you to know, when you open the scriptures, you can start with Genesis 1-1, you can finish up in the end of Revelation, and you need to understand this is God's plan A from beginning to end. Jesus is not some plan B that you read the Old Testament. It's like, yo, Israel was tripping. They're not working. I got to come up with another plan. All right, Jesus, you got to go. 
No, no, no. This has been the plan from the get-go. The triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit have designed redemption, and this has been the plan all along. Christ came to die. That was the plan. He was born to die. We celebrate Christmas because of Easter. That's why he came. He was born to die. This is the chief doctrine of Christianity. And what this means is you cannot be authentically Christian and have the cross of Christ in the periphery. You can't. You're not faithfully living as a Christian if you've got the cross on the side. It's the center of everything you are and think and do and believe and live by is the cross of Christ. Your cross of Christ must be the son of your theological solar system or your faith is in the wrong religious galaxy. He must be, the, this cross is the center point. So we must have Jesus at the center of our faith and we must have the cross of Jesus at the center of his person and his work. By grace alone, through faith alone, in the Christ who lived, died, and on the third day got up alone. That's how sinners get right with God. This is the gospel. And to not embrace the king's cross in this way is to reject the whole reason he came. And worse than that, to not embrace the cross of Christ in this way is satanic. And this is what we see. Look, Peter rebukes Jesus after this. But you got to understand to say, no, no, I don't want the cross at the center of my faith. I don't want the cross at the center of my life. I want, like, I'll take some cross, but I want something else. I want a different plan. I, I want to make sure this thing feels good along the way. Well, Jesus says that's satanic. we got to embrace the king's cross because refusal to do so is satanic. Look again at verse 22. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Or literally what he was saying is, God be merciful to you. So Peter's like, whoa, 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 what are you talking about? Go to Jerusalem, suffer at the hands of the religious leaders, and die, and get up on the third day? No, like, may the Lord have mercy. I don't, I don't want to see that. Far be it from you. God have, that doesn't feel like mercy to me. <laughs> Jesus, like that plan doesn't feel like a merciful plan of redemption. Peter took him, but, but notice, Peter took him to the side. So Peter doesn't want to embarrass him in front of the disciples. <laughs> He's seeking to be respectful. And I believe in this moment, Peter's even showing a great affection. I think there is this, like, no, 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 Jesus, I don't, I don't want to watch you suffer and die. I, I, don't, I don't want to see you go through a brutal death. No, far be it from you, Lord. That's, that's not what I want to see. He's like, this is a horrible idea. <laughs> like, this is the furthest thing from the way I think you ought to accomplish redemption. So apparently Peter, along with the rest of the disciples and, and indeed with the rest of Israel, expected Messiah to come and establish a geopolitical rule to set them free from the, underneath the thumb of Rome and to give them power and status and culture and on the earth immediately and to set them free from this bondage. That's what they're expecting. So a Messiah who comes to be king can't be a bloody Messiah, can he? Can't be a Messiah who's going to suffer and die. Peter, Peter doesn't have a framework for this, just like Israel wasn't expecting it. And Peter loves him. He, he can't stand the thought of watching his Messiah that he's just confessed as the son of the living God suffer and die. Friends, it's not uncommon for followers of Jesus who really love him to demonstrate an embarrassing display of arrogant ignorance. Think about it. Peter just rebuked the one he just confessed was the Messiah. Now he loves him. He's mature, as mature as a Christian can be at this moment, theologically. 
He loves him, but he just rebuked the Son of God. That's an ignorant and arrogant move from a sinner, even one who really and genuinely loves Jesus. Think about it. <laughs> Peter's like, Jesus, like you're my Lord and Savior, but I'm not really feeling these plans. Have you ever been there? Mm. Jesus, you're my Lord and Savior, but I'm not really feeling your plans of redemption for me. Like, I kind of want to whisper, like, you're not Lord of your life. <laughs> like, you're speaking to the Lord like you're the Lord. No, no, far be it from you to govern my life the way you're governing my life as if you're the king. That's not a good plan. Why don't you submit to my kingly reign and rule? So Jesus rebukes Peter's rebuke, verse 23. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. Get behind me, Satan. Whew. <laughs> like you went from Peter, you're a foundation, to Peter, you're the mouthpiece of Satan in five verses. <laughs> it's like, whoa, man, you talk about from the mountaintop of like, that's right, I got it right, to the valley of good night, I'm the worst there is. <laughs> it's just five verses. He went from rightly confessing you're the Christ to just five verses later, hey, Messiah and King, submit to me. You're the Lord of all, but don't be Lord over like this. Notice Peter in this moment, he's trying to stand between Jesus and the cross. And that's a hindrance to the very thing Jesus came to do. And it's a demonic hindrance. Friends, spiritual warfare is, is real. And Satan, what he most hates is the cross. He doesn't know at this point, Satan's not, like he, he's not omniscient, he doesn't know everything. He knows Jesus is Messiah. The demons knew that. They would cry out, like I, like, I know who you are. He doesn't know exactly how God's gonna accomplish redemption. He just knows Messiah's here to do it. So think about even in the temptation in Matthew chapter four. All, he, all Satan wants to do to Christ is prevent whatever it is Christ came to do. He doesn't want redemption. He does not want condemned sinners underneath the wrath of God to be set free and saved. Satan wants sinners to go to hell and burn forever. That's what he wants. And it's only, he's miserable, and it will make him more miserable for that to happen. Nothing brings hope or joy to him. He just doesn't want hope or joy going to anyone else either. And so in the temptation in Matthew chapter 4, before Jesus goes in ministry, he tempts him. Hey, Jesus, why don't you live for earthly pleasure? Turn these rocks to bread. I know you're hungry. You've been fasting. And you got the power? Man, just feed yourself. Don't trust your father to feed you. You feed yourself. And then he says to him, why to throw yourself off the temple? Because the scripture says the angels will save you. Like, prove you have security. Don't trust your father to take care of you. Test him to see if he will take care of you. But then the last temptation takes him to a high place. It says, look at all the kingdoms of earth. You can have it all if you'll bow down and worship me. So Satan's like, look, if you will just get off the throne and let me be there, the temporary rule that I have that's underneath your sovereign authority, I'll give to you. Just don't do what you came to do. Please sin before then. Please don't be a perfect savior for sinners. Please don't come to redeem and save sinners. Do something, mess up. And do you know what Jesus said to Satan in that last temptation, Matthew chapter 4? Be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God. See, Jesus does know he's headed to the cross. Satan doesn't. Jesus does. And Jesus knows the cross is Satan's death blow. 
that when he walks to the cross, he crushes the serpent's head. He knows Satan can do nothing to prevent him from saving sinners because of this perfect cross work. And all of Satan's efforts then ultimately are aimed at preventing the cross from happening. And since now it's already happened, all of his efforts are aimed at preventing the message of its happening from going out. Satan hates the cross. He doesn't want the message of the cross to advance. His attacks aren't random. So don't just all the time run around about all Satan's attacking me and it have nothing to do with the cross. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm not trying to be harsh with this statement. Like, you're not that important to Satan. Christ is. So if he's attacking you, it's because of cross. You're looking to cross or you're trying to advance cross. And he's only in one place. So he's, he just wants to make sure this message doesn't go forth. That's his aim. Get behind me, Satan, Jesus says. You are a hindrance to me. But he says it to Peter. Now why? Why does he make this intense rebuke? Notice what he's saying. Get behind me. Peter, you're trying to lead me. <laughs> I called you to follow me, and I'm going to the cross. And you're standing between me and the cross, and I'm telling you, you get behind me because I'm going to cross. And the only people that try to prevent me from going for cross are people following Satan. Satan doesn't want cross. Get behind me. Now, it's interesting, this word hindrance. It's the same word that, that is translated elsewhere in the New Testament in different ways, which like causing someone to stumble or causing them to sin. So this word hindrance is, uh, one, one uh, scholar says, any cause that results in or is intended for a person sinning, whether by preventing righteous action or by promoting sinful behavior. So friends, understand what's happening. When we try to get God to follow us, we're not only sinning by rebellion, we're inviting God to follow us into our sinful rebellion. So not only is Peter sinning because he's not following Christ, he's actually telling Christ to follow him. And if Christ follows Peter, Christ sins, Christ is no savior. So when we rebel against God by saying, I want to be Lord of my life, we're not just rebelling against God, we are doing that. But we're also saying, God, why don't you submit to me and follow me into my sin and thereby undo all of redemption. Sin is serious. That's why John Sott says the essence of sin the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrificed himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives which belong to God alone. God accepts penalties which belong to man alone. This is what happens when you set your mind on things, not on things of God, but the things of man. And this is what Peter's error was. He was thinking in earthly terms. He wasn't thinking in redemptive terms in light of the fact that this was the Messiah and his plans are always better than ours. For does not Proverbs 1, 7 say, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. But in these moments, don't you understand that what we're doing when we say, God, I don't like your plans, I don't trust your plan of redemption, that what we're doing is, is saying, no, 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 God, the fear of me is the beginning of wisdom. You would be foolish to despise my wisdom and instruction as revealed in my plans for my life and for the whole world. To ask God to change his plan is to ask him to follow your plan, and that's to ask him to be a fool because he knows best. It's to ask him to be unloving because his plans are always the most loving. Even when we don't understand, he does, and he's the most loving. It's to ask him to rebel against his own perfections and plans. How quickly we can drift from confessing that everything is built on Christ 
and on how he ought to bring about our redemption and then immediately tell him what we think he ought to do. And again, remember, Peter's not guilty of lack of love for Jesus. He's a true follower. So with true followers who really love Jesus make this error. But again, what he had missed, and he ought to have known, but he clearly wasn't thinking through the text, is that this promised son of David, David's greater son, this Messiah and king, was not only the king to come, but he was the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. See, Peter did know better. He did have the text. Isaiah 53, 700 years prior, this prophecy, surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. For sinners to be reconciled to God, the Savior had to be crushed and to account his righteousness to us, even as our sin was accounted to him. He had to take the wrath we deserved, and it's by his wounds that we are healed. We have received the righteous reward that he has earned. This is heaven's great plan. This is heaven's great gospel to redeem fallen humanity through the person and work of Christ. So if we want to grow in our affection for God, if we want to grow in our love for others, if we want to fulfill the great commission, if we want to be a part of Christ's unstoppable church, we must keep the cross of Christ on our minds. We must focus on the cross of Christ lest we believe the lies of Satan. Paul says, Romans 8, 5, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. So again, know if you're being attacked by Satan or the demonic realm, it's connected to the cross of Christ because he knows he took, again, the cosmic loss that Christ did come up on the third day, that he did save sinners, and therefore Satan can whisper whatever lies of condemnation to you he wants to. And you can respond to the enemy. You say, no, no, you're right. I'm guilty. You're right. I don't deserve heaven. You're right. I deserve hell. But I'm in Christ, and he's in me, and he deserves heaven, and he's given that to me. So that's fine if you want to whisper my sin and guilt and shame. I'm going to whisper the glorious finished work of Christ through the cross. We must embrace the king's cross. Christian, set your mind on things above Set your mind on the grace of God as displayed in the cross of Christ and live the life you're called to live. Lewis, C.S. Lewis once said, if you read history, you'll find that Christians who did the most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world, they've become so ineffective in this world. Set your mind on things that are above. That's how we will best love the poor. Set your mind on things that are above. That's how we will end racism. Set your mind on things that are above. That's how we'll stop uh, and, and rescue orphans. Set your mind, like, set your minds on the things of Christ. And this is how the world will be transformed through the cross of Christ. Now, children, let me take just a second to say to the kids, I know, listen, Pastor Clint preaches long sermons. And if I ain't preaching, whoever is also preaches long sermons. But please understand you must build your entire life 
on the cross of Christ. If you don't know or understand anything else, no, the cross of Christ is necessary for me to have relationship with God. Non-Christian friends. Like, Christians, we're, like, we're one-hit wonders. Like, we have verses full of words that explore the depths of God, of humanity, of this broken world that can go on and on and on forever. But the chorus that brings the whole song together, Jesus died on the cross for our sins and rose again on the third day. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong in the cross. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is the chorus we sing, the cross of Christ. Non-Christian friends, how we wish you would sing this song of faith with us. To do so, you must embrace the King's cross with us. And also, I want you to know, even church, this is not mere confession. This is not mere lip service. A true confession is required. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. But a true confession of faith leads to a lifestyle for that confessor of walking in faith. Or to say it another way, those who embrace the King's cross also must embrace the cross that the king gives. Second point, we must embrace our cross. So we must believe and trust with all that we are in the cross of Christ, whether we're a child or the oldest, most mature saint. But also we must then embrace the cross that he's given and, and called us to bear. To follow Jesus is to go the way of the cross. So it's to confess the cross, but it's also to go the way of the cross. Look at verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone... So this is not just these disciples. Anyone, if anyone will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So Jesus says, if anyone wants to be a follower, he must embrace self-denial and suffering as a means of following Jesus. But notice, there is, like, there's a decision to be made. Like, if anyone wants to come after me, one scholar said, nobody becomes a follower of Jesus by drifting into it. Like, there has to be, the will has to be activated. Now, God has got to do it by his spirit and activate that will, but then you have a decision to make. Will I follow after him? Do I mean to follow after King Jesus? Am I just going to confess, oh, yeah, I believe he died on the cross for my sins. Demons do that and shudder. No, no, am I going to confess, no, he's the Christ, and I want to follow him? What does it look like then? What does it, what does it look like to have a true confession and then be a true confessor that actually follows that confession? Well, first you've got to deny yourself. Like, you can't walk with God and not deny yourself. Can't be a faithful Christian and say, I'm going to live for me. Can't do it. Jesus says, no, no, no. If you're going to follow me, first you've got to deny yourself. And this is not new for these disciples. Chapter 4, verse 18 to 22, when, when Jesus called Peter and Andrew and James and John, he called them to leave their fishing careers. So they're throwing nets. They're fishing. <laughs> He's like, come follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. <laughs> it's like, man, incredible illustration. They get it. But to come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men is to leave those nets and that career behind and now live a new life following me. So they understand that i got to deny myself and follow this Christ if I'm going to follow him. Chapter 8, verse 18 to 22, he's having these interactions. And they're like, oh, we'll follow you anywhere. He's like, you know I'm homeless, right? The Son of Man has got nowhere to lay his head. You still going to follow me? You willing to leave your career? You willing to leave your home, your security? And then somebody says, oh, no, I want to follow you, but first let me bury my father. He's, maybe he's getting old in age. Let me, let, me, no, I, like, let me do this first. Jesus said, leave the dead to bury their own dead. You come follow me. So throughout Jesus' ministry, as he's been proclaiming, he's been making these demands 
No, no, you got to be willing to leave career if that's what he calls. You got to be willing to leave family if that's what he calls. You got to be willing to leave comfort and safety if that's what he calls you to do. So the point he's getting at, and this doesn't mean that all of us have to leave all of those things per se. Some people probably ought to. But what it means is our allegiance to Christ must be so supreme, nothing else competes with him. You must be willing to deny yourself, whatever that looks like. Like if there's something that's competing with King Jesus, it's, it's king. That's the problem. And so he presses in on the most important things that are valuable and good to say, hey, just so you know, the kind of lordship I'm calling for is a lordship. It means I'm lord over all of life, not, all of life, not over compartments. Like Jesus is not interested in being a lord of compartments, lord for you. He's king over your whole life or you reject him, one or the other. He's not interested in part-time duties. He's not interested in being your co-pilot. He's flying the plane or he's not on it. <laughs> like he's not sharing this with you. No, he's saying to, to, to be a follower of Christ is to say I'm willing to deny my own lordship. This is basic Christianity. This is not superstar Christianity. All of us have to lay down our desires for career, for family, for comfort, for home, for, for what the life we think. Like all of that we have to say, Jesus, this is at your feet. Here are my desires, and some of them he will give to you. But if you take them away, you're king. You're Lord, I trust you. So don't be surprised. Even in all of that, even in this moment, don't be surprised if this high cost of discipleship feels unnatural to you. Because it's contrary to our sinful nature. Our sinful nature naturally says, do what's best for me. <laughs> so it should feel unnatural a little bit in as much as you still have some sinful nature in dwelling, uh, the, the, the old man in dwelling flesh. So it should feel unnatural. It's also unnatural in a broken world, which is full of commercials. that Just watch commercials. Every one of them are appealing to your desire to serve you. Every one of them. Just watch. Pay attention. Unashamedly, they're saying, I'm assuming you're a narcissist. Let me appeal to your narcissism. Because if I can appeal to your narcissism, then I will get your allegiance to my product and I'll make a bunch of money off of you. And the best way I can make money off of you is by giving you what you want. So our whole economy is set up around, let's get consumers to be consumed with themselves and give them what they want to get more of themselves and we'll make a lot of money. It's unnatural to deny yourself in a broken world. It's unnatural because it's not what Satan wants us to do. Satan is super happy with you living for you. He loves that. Just don't live for the cross. He don't care what, you can live a good moral life. He's like, that's fine, that's fine. Good moral life don't save anybody. Cross saves people. Just don't live for the cross. So, so it should feel unnatural when Jesus says, if you want to be my follower, you got to make the decision to deny yourself. And that's going to feel unnatural because it's unnatural to your sin, it's unnatural to the world we live in, and it's unnatural to the spiritual influence of Satan. Think about it. Jesus says the great commandment is what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love others as yourself. Satan's great commandment is love yourself with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Use God and others to do that. And our culture is just amening it and selling it to you as fast as possible. This is why Jesus' rebuke of Peter was so intense. Because it's demonic. It's preventing and seeking to prevent redemption. But the cross is the place where Jesus displays the ultimate act of self-denial and love. So he's saying, no, to be my follower, you got to have self-denial. And he's not one of these leaders that's like telling you to do it, but he's not willing to. <laughs> like he denied himself and died on the cross, and he's the king of kings. Greater love has no one than this, and he would lay down his life for his friends, John 15, 13. 
So Jesus demonstrates, no, 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 if you're going to follow me, you got to follow my way. And my way is to deny myself for the glory of God and the good of others. So you can't follow me and be all about you. That's not the way I'm leading. That's to go down a different path. You cannot follow Jesus without denying yourself. But also he says, take up your cross. So it's not just a self-denial. <laughs> he says you got to die daily. Luke, in Luke's version, uh, Luke says, uh, take up your cross daily. So there's not just a self-denial. There's a daily self-dying. And again, it's the same idea, same concept. Dying to your own sovereignty and kingship over your own life. This is a call to love the Lord Jesus more than you love life itself. That's why Bonhoeffer said in his classic book on discipleship, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. That's why the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 1.21, to live is Christ, to die is gain. It's to embrace suffering as a normal means of the Christian life and even of kingdom advancement. But he says this, is like, this posture has to be one of your king and I'll follow you come what may. To deny yourself, to die to yourself in order to follow Christ is to follow the Christ who denied himself in order to save you. This is the logic of Philippians chapter 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Don't live for you. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interest, but also to the interest, not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, denied himself, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. To live this kind of life, embracing the king's cross and your own Christ, uh, cross, is going to take just a mindset shift. Like you just got to have different values now as a Christian. So Jesus is assuming, if you follow me, you have a whole different value system. And so he kind of bombards the disciples with these kind of if-then illustration and rhetorical questions. He, again, he uses um, different literary devices. And so that's what he's going to do. He's kind of bombard with similar questions that are getting at the same basic principle. In order to live this kind of life of self-denial and dying to yourself, you have to prioritize the eternal over the temporal. You've got to care more about eternity than you do right now. Or you just won't follow him. Bottom line. <laughs> If you care more about right now, you will not follow Christ. You've got to think about big picture. You've got to think about eternal things. And, and this leads to a giving of your life away. Look at verse 25. So again, we'll walk through these questions. He says, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So simple enough. Save your life now, lose your life forever. Lose your life now, find your life forever. So it's like if you're going to save your life now, if you're going to avoid the cross, if you're like, oh, hold up. I was good with Jesus dying for me and, and that getting me to heaven. I'm not good with following him there and maybe i got to carry a cross too. Not interested in that. He's like, if you live for this earthly life right now, you'll lose it forever. You don't get it. But if you understand, no, no, I want to give this life away for the sake of the cross, for the glory of God, for the good of others, as a faithful mom or dad or student or brother or sister or worker in the workplace, like whatever I'm doing, I want to be faithful to God and to, to love and serve others, then you'll gain life. So again, Christ is demonstrating, even here, and, and friends, do we not see this? I, the, the fact the scriptures are living and active is so clear. Living the selfish life is not real life, not real satisfying life. Again, every commercial is trying to convince us to do it. Everything in culture and in our flesh and in Satan's teaching is trying to convince us to live for ourselves. But do you not make the observation that's not real life, it's just breathing to death? It's not real life. You're not satisfied. 
We are following what we want more than any culture, any generation ever before. Suicide rates and depression rates skyrocketing. Doesn't work. Living for yourself is just living to exist, and it doesn't satisfy. Because it's not what God made you to do. So when you're doing that, you're going a direction you were never made to live. And so again, he's like, no, no, if you try to build your life here and ignore that, you're not even going to get the thing you're trying to build here. But if you give your life away here, you get that. And there's a joy here that you actually long for. To set your mind on the things of men means living to save your life. But you end up losing it now and for eternity. To set your mind on the things of God is to give your life away, but find life now and for eternity. He continues, you got to prioritize eternal rewards over earthly riches. So again, it's the same concept, maybe said in a little different way, but you got to prioritize eternal rewards over earthly riches. Look at verse 26. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. So he's asking the question. Jesus is not against your pleasure and joy. He's like, like, what do you really gain if you lose it all forever? Like, is your soul not more important than the, like, which version of the iPhone that you have? Like, is your soul and your eternal state not more important than how you feel today? Like, he's just asking a simple question. That do you not realize that you're more valuable than just trying to find pleasure for a second that goes away a second later? You're more valuable to, than that. Why would you give what you can't keep to gain what you cannot lose? Jim Elliott, the missionary, said, who gave his life for the cause of Christ. He's no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Like, this is just basic good logic. Like, why would you prioritize less valuable things over more valuable things that are going to be better for you in the end? Prioritize eternal rewards over earthly riches. What would you choose over your soul's eternity? Friends, we've got to be aware of embracing a cross that doesn't cost us anything. We've got to be careful that our Christianity is not a Christianity that doesn't cost anything, that never requires sacrifice, because that's surely not the Christianity of the Bible. It's a cultural Christianity, maybe. It's an American dream Christianity. It's, it's not biblical Christianity. Biblical Christianity is going to cost me something. Biblical Christianity is going to be weighty to me in this life. Yet there's going to be a peace about it now and forevermore. And so there should be attention. And so I'll just ask you a few questions. What, what, is it, what do you gain if you, you, you get everything you want, all of your dreams come true, but then eternity in torment away from God? What did you really gain? What does your spending habits reveal about where your treasure is? Are you living and pursuing eternal rewards or earthly rewards? If you just look simply at the percentage that you give priority to for your savings account and the percentage that you give priority to in giving away for the cause of Christ, what do those percentages look like? Earthly rewards or eternal rewards? When you think about your time, who are you giving most of your time away to? What are you giving most of your time away for? Earthly rewards, eternal rewards. And again, this doesn't mean you ought not work secular jobs. Secular jobs are beautiful ways to glorify the Lord Jesus. We need faithful Christians in every kind of job all over the planet. The question is just, why am I doing it? <laughs> Earthly rewards or eternal rewards? What about your talents and gifts? When you get a chance to do something you're good at, what drives the motivation of how you use it? 
Earthly rewards or eternal rewards? What about recreation, free time? Like, are, are there any times in life when you think through these categories of your time, of your talents, of your treasure, of your money, of your gifts, as you think through all these things, are there ever things that's like, man, I would do that, but the thing is, I'm following Christ. And so I'm going to give that up. It's costing me, and yet I'm happy about it because the reward in Christ is greater. Jesus is going to be the judge in the end of how you live your life. And this is what he clearly says. That in the end, you will give account for which was the greater reward, the earthly or the eternal for you. He's going to determine how that was. But I want you to see this promise, friend. Like, it's sweet. He's promising reward. So again, he's not a killjoy who's out here trying to tell you, no, follow me, die to yourself, deny yourself, and it's going to be terrible. That's not what he's saying. He's, no, no, no. This is the pathway to real life here and forever. That as you give your life away for the glory of God and good of others, you find a joy that this world knows nothing of. Listen, I know some people who literally in their monthly budget for groceries spend almost as much feeding other people as they do feeding themselves. I don't know anybody who enjoys eating food like they do. <laughs> Not the person who's like, no, I'm going to store up all of my money so I can eat all the best food for me. The person who says, no, 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 even my home, even my food, even my dinner table, how can I use it for your glory? Those are the people that have joy in this life. Those are the people that have joy in the next. So he's promising reward. I just talked to the college students the other night. I said, no, read Psalm 16, verse 11. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there's fullness of joy at your right hand pleasures forevermore. God's not holding out on you when he calls you to this life of self-denial and dying to yourself. He's promising you greater rewards than anything this earth has to offer. So you prioritizing eternal rewards rather than earthly rewards is you prioritizing the greatest joy in God you could ever imagine. He's not a killjoy. Lewis, again, it would seem our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. Faithful Christian, can I encourage you for a second? You will be rewarded. And though you didn't earn it, you entered glory by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, and then walked with him imperfectly, he will reward all of your imperfect seeking to be faithful, stewarding the life he's called you to. Why do I say that? Because the Bible does. Matthew 19, just later, Jesus is going to have an interaction with his disciples. And they're like, okay, hold up. But Jesus is like, we left everything. <laughs> like, you're talking about self-denial. You're talking about dying to yourself. And, like, we left homes and careers and money. And, like, hey, like, you do see that, right? Like, there's, you sense Peter. And, again, Peter's messed up already. <laughs> like, so you can sense there's a little timidity in the question. Matthew 19. So Peter said in reply, see, we, we've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, in the new world when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will sit on the 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel, speaking to the apostles. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my namesake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last. Christian friend, it's bitter but then sweet. There's cross but then there's crown. There's humiliation but then exaltation. So to set your mind on the things of God means finding life now and forever with God and giving and having a joy that no others know. Now, 
You see he ends in verse 28, and then we'll wrap up with a few applications. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Lots of debate on what does Jesus mean. So he doesn't give details on when this is or what it looks like, what particularly uh, details of when this coming and when they will see him. He didn't give us those details. So I want to give you six options. The first one's whack and not an option if you actually follow Christ. The other five faithful Christians really could come to biblical conclusions on what does he mean by saying there's some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. The first whack one is he was wrong, and he just didn't understand, and he messed up, and it didn't happen. Okay, if you're a Christian, we reject that one. We don't believe that violates the rest of Scripture. Possible answers. What does he mean? He could be talking about his resurrection and ascension. So you'll see the Son of Man. There's some here, standing here, hearing me say all of this, that will see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom before you even die. Possibly he's talking about his resurrection and his ascension, because there are witnesses in this moment that witness that. He also could possibly be talking about the Spirit descending and falling at Pentecost. So the Spirit comes down at Pentecost, kingdom's advancing, maybe that's what he's talking about. He could just be talking generally about the spread of Christianity, that now the gospel's going to flourish as the Great Commission is being fulfilled. Some scholars believe he's talking about the destruction of the Jerusalem temple in A.D. 70. And still yet others would say, if you just look at down in your Bibles at uh, Matthew chapter 17, the transfiguration, which we'll study in a, a couple of weeks, that that's what he's talking about, that there's this glorious moment where his glory is revealed. That's the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So again, faithful Christians can land on and make a biblical argument for each of those. The text doesn't give us enough clarity to know definitively which he's talking about, but all of those biblically are faithful and would make sense. I personally uh, tend to lean the Matthew 17 uh, transfiguration piece because in all of the gospel accounts, when we see this right afterwards, you see transfiguration. So it would seem to me to make sense, but again, I'm not willing to take a bullet for that one uh, as there are good biblical arguments on all of those. But here's the point. This is not something to put off. There were some in that day that would see this happening before they died. There are some in this day that are going to die long before you think you're going to die. And so therefore understanding, no, no, eternity is coming for all of us. It's not something to put off. The kingdom is advancing, and what you do with the cross of Christ will determine your eternal state. Because of God's grace and mercy and his power working in and through and revealing himself, it's how you respond to the cross of Christ that will determine rewards forever or just punishment forever. We must embrace the king's cross, and we must embrace the cross the king gives to us to carry. A few applications on how you can do that. How can you embrace the king's cross and carry your own? Number one, our community groups. As these kick off, one of the things that's difficult about preaching the scriptures, I've heard uh, you know, some scholars say, the difficulty of preaching is, and what you're praying and asking, and I even prayed this morning, was you want to, you're asking God, God, would you comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable? But you're trying to do one and the same with the same message. <laughs> so it's difficult, because it's like, now there are people in the room that are way too comfortable and aren't living faithfully, and they, they need to be afflicted and troubled, convicted by the Spirit of God and, and lead to repentance and faith. And there's some of you who are suffering, going through affliction, and the Spirit brings forth a comfort of God's presence and peace. And, and so we pray for both to happen. But it's hard to apply in a sermon with this many people in this many different situations, specifically to each one. These community groups, a lot easier to do. To sit down tonight and discuss this text and say, what does it look like for me to embrace the King's cross what does it look like for me to embrace the cross he's called me to carry? Am I making any sacrifices because of my allegiance to Jesus? If not, why? And where might he be calling to me to make sacrifices? Those are good conversations to have in your community groups 
tonight. In, in, in fact, one, uh, one book says that, uh, you know, Christianity is really just a Bible reading movement. Like, that's what we're trying to do as community groups. We've talked about the text this morning. Get together in community and talk about how that text ought to transform your life by the power of the Spirit and for the glory of God and the good of others. I'd also challenge you, again, how can you carry your own cross? Get together with someone to do them spiritual good. Decide. Let's get together and let's talk about the Scriptures. Let's read a book together. Let's help one another grow spiritually. I want to make sure I'm giving my life away, giving my time away, giving my resources away. I want to do that with other faithful brothers and sisters and help them grow and them help me grow. Stay-at-home moms. Get, get some play dates on the calendar where you and another mom talk about the cross. The kids are playing and they're interrupting every 3.7 to 8 seconds. That's fine. Get as much cross talk in as you can. <laughs> but we got to be intentional. Again, like you, you've got to take steps to say, no, no, I'm, I'm going to carry this cross. And I want help on knowing what that looks like. Again, discuss a chapter, week, a, a, a book of the Bible, or a good book about the Bible. Ask and pray for cross-colored glasses as you view life. Lord, make me centered on the cross. Make me look through the lens of the cross. Make me enjoy the mercy of the cross. Ask yourself, do I have eternal priorities or earthly priorities? What needs to be adjusted in my time, in my, how I use money, in my relationships, in my job, in my recreation, and what we do in gathering with the people of God? And then for those who love sound doctrine, no, we cannot uh, confuse the importance of the cross. So let's, let us have conversations theologically and biblically about secondary or tertiary issues and what we think the scriptures teach. But let us never forget the cross of Christ and what we do with the cross of Christ is what determines if we belong to get together with God forever or not. So even as we have disagreements on secondary and tertiary matters, let us remember we're doing that with brothers and sisters that Christ shed his blood for, which ought to change how we do that. One of the spirit of our age that we live in is, is a spirit of division and fighting and trying to point out everybody's errors. That's incredibly fleshly and worldly. Let us be the kind of people that say, no, no, we want to point to the truth, but do so charitably because we agree on the cross and that's what makes us family. God is patient with us. Let us be patient with one another. Think about Peter. Think about his journey. He messed up bad right here. Great confession, messed up bad. Later denies Christ three times, gets restored, and then he gets to preach uh, at Pentecost. You know the sermon? You know what he preaches about? What do you think he preaches about? The cross. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Plan A. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Peter preached the cross. He suffered and died. Church history says he asked to be crucified upside down because he wasn't worthy to die like his master. So he got the lesson. He embraced the king's cross and he carried his own, literally, even unto death. And let us then follow his example because of God's grace. Let me close in prayer. Father, help us to imitate Christ.